living in the Kansas City area in the summer of 1981 can recall the harrowing collapse of two overhead walkways inside the Hyatt Regency Hotel. Those platforms were full of partygoers attending an evening dance in the lobby below. Failure of their structure was catastrophic. The tragedy killed 114 people and injured more than 200. It is a moment that marks time. On the 40th anniversary of the Hyatt collapse, Rick Serrano, who shared a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the disaster, chronicles in a new book, the suffering of people touched by the event and brings new focus to what went wrong, how it could have been avoided and what lessons carry forward. Mr. Serrano, welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast and congratulations on your book, Buried Truths. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for your time on, on your busy day. Uh, so the subtitle of Buried Truths and the Hyatt Skywalks is the legacy of America's epic structural failure, epic indeed it was. Can you paint a picture for us about what was happening just before the collapse? The Hyatt Hotel in Kansas City was, was fairly new. It had only been open about a year and two weeks when this happened. And it was uh, uh, the second hotel in the Crown Center complex just off downtown in Kansas City. And it was, it was the new jewel. It was a beautiful, beautiful building with a revolving uh, Sky's restaurant on top, on top, but down below was the real gem. It was the lobby, and the lobby had these two hanging skywalks. It had three skywalks, but two of them were connected together. The second floor and the fourth floor, and you could you could walk across these skywalks to and see the lobby below. And they were kind of marvels of architecture at that time, and and they had these very thin rods that were hanging them up to to give the impression as though they just floated on air. And uh, uh, not only was the Skywalks, but the hotel had started this craze called a tea dance about three months before. And every Friday night, they would have a live jazz band, swing music. And uh, as each week went on, they'd get more and more people. And it became the kind of cool thing to be at. It would run between about five and seven, and they would just pack it in in there. And by the time of the last tea dance, they had... Uh, upwards of 2000 people. Now, most of these were older, uh, middle, you know, middle-aged uh, couples and uh, who remembered some of the, you know, the World War II songs and the swing, swing era and all that. Mm -hmm. But there was, there was booze and there was food and, and, uh, and it, was, it was just the place to be on a Friday night in Kansas City. So on July 17th, again, they had 2000 people in there and the, the band was playing a, an old Duke Ellington song called Satin Doll. And they were having a dance contest and uh, probably about uh, 1500 people on the lobby floor and the rest of them were up on stairways and a terrace cafeteria uh, dining restaurant when all of a sudden the two skywalks gave way <clears throat> now these skywalks weighed tons they was they were steel and concrete and glass and metal and they spanned the lobby and they were like 120 feet across and so when the, the fourth floor broke first and smashed onto the second floor skywalk, and they both came down. And it cost the lives of 114 people, and another 200 were injured. Yeah, so when, when I think about what m that scene must have looked like, I, I know in my mind what happened on 9-11 with the Twin Tower building in New York. It appeared to pancake to the ground. Is, is that kind of what these two skywalks did in the Hyatt? They did. That's a, that's a really good description. The top one hit the second one, and they both came down together. Uh, it's also all sort of like what we had last summer in Florida, that the Surfside condos where the floors just kind of caved in and, and flattened all together. 
a tremendous amount of noise and a tremendous dust, cement dust. And uh, there was a um, water pipe that ran through the fourth floor skywalk and it burst. So the lobby began to fill up with water. There was a lobby pit and it began to fill up with water. The, the electricity shut out, uh, shorted out. So it was very, very chaotic, horrific scene. Yeah, I think that, that the medical injuries and the mayhem there, oh gosh, it's just hard to comprehend. Now, let's, as part of the scene setting here, let's, let's talk about what you were doing at the time. You, you weren't, in fact, there as a, a dance fan, I, I suspect. No, no. I was a reporter at the Kansas City Star. I had been there since 72. I started as a copy boy and kind of worked my way up to reporter and all that. And uh, actually that night I was in Washington, D.C. on a story and uh, I flew back the next morning and spent the last, the next year and a half basically covering that. Uh, mm -hmm. not, not just the event, but why it happened and how and who was responsible and uh, the litigation, the federal investigation into it. and. Uh, so that was my job. And then, then, uh, uh, through, through the end of 82. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the Hyatt, I grew up in suburban Kansas city and, uh, would have been, a uh, just out of my teen years, but it seemed like everybody knew somebody who, who was there and, you know, it wasn't hard to go around Kansas city and find somebody personally connected to this. So it's, you can't, uh, overestimate the impact of, of having 114 people killed like this uh, all in one swoop. And so I was, I was doing some reading. I believe this was the deadliest structural collapse in over a century in the United States. And it's only been surpassed, I think, by the Trade Center uh, collapses. Is that correct? That's correct. The, uh, the, Surfside in Florida, it resulted in 98 deaths, so that was pretty close, but, but Kansas City had 114. The 9-11, uh, uh, I covered that for that. I went on to work for the LA Times, and okay. uh, I covered that for the LA Times out of the Washington Bureau, and they, uh, of course, that was 3,000 people dead, but that, mm -hmm. that was an active, that was a man-made thing. That was a, an intentional you know, act of terrorism, whereas the Hyatt was uh, a, a question of... Uh, of architecture and engineering and construction um, crews and 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 uh, so it, it was it was it's different in that way and as a structural failure it's the worst in the United States. Yes. Okay, so let's. You mentioned three areas of responsibility there. Let's start with construction. What went wrong? Even in the construction of this, there were signs that there could have been a faulty design. Well, they had a, the construction. They had they had what but then was called a fast track schedule. Which was fairly new for for buildings at that time, and you would uh, you would start some construction while instead of waiting around for the plans and the blueprints, you get things going early, so that things were going pretty soon. Things were going quite fast, and a lot of decisions and design changes were made on the fly in phone calls or or you know they would change decisions and it was hard to keep up. and And a lot of the foremen and and uh, in the construction industry had a hard time keeping pace with all this. And one of the key decisions that was made in the skywalks was how to uh, do the hanger rods. And the hanger rods ran from the ceiling to the fourth floor and into the, onto the second floor so that they, they hung together. And they made a decision uh, halfway through the construction of the hotel to change that configuration. And instead of, instead of six rods, they made it 12. 
And so there'll be one rod from the ceiling to the fourth floor and, and a separate rod from the fourth to the second. So you had, you had 12 rods. And in fact, that uh, weakened it, weakened the structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. On top of that, yeah, on top of that, they had a, also around that time, they were making that design change. The ceiling in the lobby crashed overnight and huge hunks of steel and concrete fell into the lobby. The only good thing about it was that it was uh, four o'clock on a Sunday morning. Had it been during their workday, it would have killed at least 50 iron workers. And so they went in there and they, they realized they had a lot of faulty connections with, with bolts and the, the way they were the steel to steel, steel to concrete, the way that they were fashioned up there. So they went through, they fixed all those. But what they didn't realize was that the same kind of connections were also used in the skywalks. Had they done that, they would have realized they had a, a real problem with the skywalks as well, that they were eventually going to fail and going to fall. But Donald Hall, who was then the chairman of Hallmark, to his credit, he, after, after the ceiling failure, he said, you know, we need to, these skywalks, is there any way that we can go in later with access panels, little doors that could be opened up around the connections that from time to time, we can look in and see if the bolts and, the, and everything is holding good. And they said, yeah, and they put those access panels in. The problem was when they turned the hotel over to the Hyatt Corporation, they never told them. Never told them it was there, and so nobody ever looked inside. Had they, it's very good chance they would have seen that the bolts were weakening. Good lord! So the, in, in fact, uh, if they had looked at inside these access panels, perhaps they would have seen that these rods, uh, big steel rods holding up the two skywalks, were progressively eroding. Yeah, weakening. That the that the flanges were were pulling and stretching and stressing, and and you would have uh, you would have known to go in and and, and repair them. I mean, I, I spoke to the guy, the, the head engineer at the Hyatt at that time, and he didn't, he did, I didn't even know about these panels. He had no idea about them. And so it was, it was, uh, it was a screw up, I guess. But, but on top of that, um, the inspections, the city building uh, department is supposed to inspect these construction sites. This was, this was a construction effort that lasted two and a half years. They spent only 18 hours there at the site doing inspections. Most of the inspectors were like two minutes. Sometimes the inspector didn't even get out of the car. So the inspections were basically uh, non-existent. I presume that's changed in Kansas City, Missouri. When I built a garage workshop in my backyard, I submitted detailed drawings to the city. In fact, my first set got rejected. And uh, so the second set I turned in at, accounted for every two by four. And, uh, yeah. But, but yeah. My, my, my site was inspected by the city three times. And so what the heck is going on with inspection standards in, in Kansas City? Well, it was bad then. It was really bad, Tim. In fact, the, uh, after that, about a year later, a couple of other, other reporters at the Star had uh, followed some of the inspectors around, including some of those who were chastised for not properly inspecting the Hyatt. And they were just goofing off. Instead of were these being, the guys also, that were, were going and reading books in the library or something? Well, they were going to the library, they're going to the pool room, they were going to the bars, they were staying home watching TV and falsifying their records. And the, wow. the, the head of the public works lost his job and the, a lot of these inspectors got fired. And the, yeah, it, it, really, it really shook things up. So there were, it has to be a, the responsibility perhaps centered on maybe engineering, but it has to be the responsibility of the city government, architects, engineers, and construction. It was a it was a combined failure, right? 
it was like a bonfire of failures, really. I mean, all these things. And then, and then on top of all that, the, uh, the general contractor, Eldridge and son, and they were a favorite of Hallmark. They built, they built much of crown center and Hallmark liked them. And they were just over their head. They had, they were, they were uh, financially not stable. And uh, about three quarters of the way they, they, they went bankrupt. They had to be dismissed from the site and they had to bring in new people. And, uh, so it was it was just a, you know just a, a plethora of, of issues that that came together you know and then and then and then within a year of opening here came this awful awful night of the tea dance. Let's talk about the the legal. Uh, there, there had to have been civil lawsuits, but perhaps criminal too. And just real quickly, the consequences and then let's shift to the longer term aftermath. So uh, w- there was an investigation, no doubt. Uh, was there a criminal trial? Uh, I'll talk about the investigation first. The, the 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 Federal National Bureau of Standards, which is sort of like the NTSB that, that investigates plane crashes, they they were brought in to to investigate what went wrong, and it took them about seven months and uh, did a thorough investigation. Really did a top flight investigation and and determined that the that the that design change in the rods was was critical, but that these, even as designed, never never met the guidelines uh, of the Kansas City Building Code. We violated the codes, and they were doomed to fail eventually anyway. So that was that. Then the uh, legal, you know, they were you had so many dead and so many injured, so you had this huge number of, of uh, lawsuits, civil lawsuits, both in federal and state court. And Hallmark early on. Uh, because Hallmark owned the building and they built it. I had only okay. simply managed it, but Hallmark decided early on that they were going to compensate everyone. They didn't want any trial. They, did, they didn't want this to go to trial, and they succeeded in that. They uh, they sell everybody out of court, and, and 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 on top of that, they ended up giving a, a lot of money to ch- local charities to help uh, the city heal some. And uh, the only so there was no criminal fallout, but there was a uh, the state of Missouri. Uh, filed uh, uh, administrative charges against the two top you know, structural engineers, and that case went to to hearings in '84. And those engineers lost their license in Missouri. Just in Missouri, so they could go to California and cause mayhem. No, but they uh, the 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 company, the main company, was Gillum Calaco, and they had, they were one of the top flight engineering companies in the country, and they had they had uh, outlets all over the. United States and the, they they went under because nobody wanted to hire them obviously and uh, yeah, but, yeah but they just lost their license in Missouri yeah so there never was a, a real trial with victims and and uh, and never were people able to say how this happened and why this happened and what we can do you know the suffering that the victims had and all. so that was never aired in any way yeah, you uh, no doubt I'm sorry yeah. interrupted no it's fine so so that's what my book is trying to do I mean I, I you know, I, I was given access to the entire pretrial package, what, what we would have learned had there been a trial. That included like 75 legal depositions and all the evidentiary material. And so, what, you know, the evidence that we would have seen in a trial. So I was able to patch that together and said, had, had this thing gone to a courtroom, this is what the city and the country would have learned about this horrible tragedy. And on, on top of that, I interviewed 240 people. And I, I'm talking about uh both people who worked at the, on, at the building, but also the victims and the first responders. And I was surprised to learn that the first responders back, you know, back then there was no real PTSD. I mean, if you were a fireman or a police, you just, 
you go to something like this and you use folks to be back to work the next day and there was no time off for therapy or counseling and there was a horrendous amount of suffering with these firemen and police i mean they they went into this lobby there was no way they could lift those those slabs they were just they were too heavy and there were people screaming under there and then praying for help and they they couldn't help them and you're you know you're you you're you wear a fireman's uh, suit and a policeman's uniform and that's the last thing you want to be in a situation where you really can't help somebody and so they they came away with the alcoholism and drugs and divorce and and uh, depression and in some cases suicide even. and so that's that is one legacy certainly of the aftermath of the hyatt collapse rick so you spoke with firefighters and and police officers and so forth that that have endured this for 40 years and they still have they still they still deal with it today yes many of them many of them are still uh, haunted by what uh, what happened that night what they were unable to do that night yeah no doubt it's interesting how these calamities help uh turn the clock a bit you know ptsd is now more recognized than it was 20 years ago as a a real malady yeah, that it is, people it is, can stand it, up and talk about it is it's very you know i never thought about that i mean i went on to my you know other things and and yet these people really had difficult difficult times with it what about yourself? Oh, I, I, I was, you know, I moved on and uh, I was, I was, you know, I was a very young reporter. I was in my mid twenties and uh, I covered it for a year and a half. And, and then I went, I thought I was going to, they wanted me to cover the, there, there's going to be a class action trial, but it settled at the last minute. And so mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have to do that. And they, they transferred me to the Washington, the stars, Washington bureau. So let's talk about the families. You, you spoke to 240 people, some of those individuals, uh, lost family members in the collapse, but also there's many injured people too that live with lifelong uh, uh, physical issues and mental issues. So, what about what about the family side of it? They still have their they still have their grievances, they they their issues. They, you know, many of them when they look back at it, they wish they hadn't settled. They 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 wish that that what what I was trying to do, what I'm trying to do in my book, could have come out at that time. And that somebody would have stood up and said, "I'm responsible. I made these changes. You know, I I didn't do this right. Uh, I was complacent. I thought, you know, we always build these buildings this way. So, you know, I know how to build a bridge. I, I've done it a million times. But but they never got that chance. They never got a chance to sit in front of a judge and the jury and the and the public, and and say what uh, why explain explain and express their suffering. But at the time, I mean, Hallmark was. And they were they were so uh, uh, they were so desirous of selling these, and there was a lot of money going, a lot of money going around, and uh, and uh, they all they all capitulate, and they and they feel bad that they did. They feel many of them feel bad they did that. So not only did family members who who had uh, were part of civil litigation, they were unsatisfied with the result, other than other than receiving some money, but individuals who had some culpability in this couldn't stand up and publicly declare their responsibility as well sort of uh share their their burden of guilt correct correct there was nobody there was no name placed on the, on this so you you mentioned that some families wish they hadn't settled is that because they signed non-disclosure agreements and couldn't talk about it they weren't really non-disclosure agreements. That's what we see today, and a lot of these, this like uh, this kind of litigation. And uh, 
for instance, the, the mass shooting in Las Vegas at, at, uh, outside that casino four years ago. Yeah. Uh, that all settled. They, they settled all that. I mean, really, it's a situation where from if you're the defendants in those and Hallmark was the chief defendant, Hallmark Crown Center and then Hyatt. But but, you, you know, you, you you know, I covered the Boston bombing trial. And you had these people coming into the stand on wheelchairs and crutches and uh, I mean, it, 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 and tears all over in, in the courtroom. And it, 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 it kills the brand. I mean, if you're Hallmark or if you're Crown Center, that, that doesn't help at all. I mean, it's, it's bad. It's bad publicity. It's bad image. Uh, and, uh, and so you, you, want to, you, want to, you want to settle all that. And that's what they did. And they, and they pushed all that. But some of them, you know, they second guess. I mean, they were, you know. Should we have done that? You know, maybe today we would have got a lot more, and, and you know why? You know, they kind of kicked themselves a little bit for doing that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, sometimes money isn't the cure for what ails us. Um, you know, the Hall family. It's interesting that they could perceive just how colossal the damage would have been, as you say, to their brand. You know, the Hall family is very prominent in Kansas City in a lot of different ways. And so it's interesting that they took such a proactive stance on, on just handing out checks. It is interesting, but that's oftentimes how that works. I mean, the, the clock ticks until the right before you, you pick a jury and then they settle. And that, mm-hmm. the biggest case in this was a federal class action case. And that's what happened. It was settled that morning. But, but, they, but Hallmark, even um, if, you, if you were uh, in the lobby and saw, saw it, but were not hurt, you could go to a, a insurance office on state line road and get a thousand dollar check because you might've had some mental language. So, so, I mean, they were, they were, they were, they were trying to pay off, uh, to pay, to, re- to compensate everyone, you know, thousand dollars. Donald Hall told the Charlie Egan, who was the general counsel of Hallmark at that time, he wasn't interested in lawsuits. He hmm. just wanted to, to pay whatever was worth, and to move on. I mean, he knew he was the deepest pocket and he accepted that. He just wanted to heal the city the best he could and, and move on with it. Yeah. What, what do we think the, I'm just curious how much somebody who died in the collapse, what was their death worth? Do you have any idea? Uh, you know, you calculate that, you, you calculate that by age, uh, their occupation, the size of their family, the extent of their suffering. I mean, that's, that's all computed differently. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've talked about a little bit about the uh, legal system and Hallmark. And what about city government reforms that they, you think that they address the shortcomings of the inspection system in Kansas City? Are buildings safe over there? Well, you know, we all hope so. I mean, I, I think so. They, they did, uh, they had a big, uh, rather large house cleaning after the inspections fiasco. And uh, um, so that was good. That, that certainly was good, but uh, I mean, the city's still booming. You know, I I'm I was born and raised in Kansas City, and I was coming back a lot for this book and uh, until COVID. But uh, they, uh, you say everything's going up, and they're building, they're building, building, building. So, so how long did you work on the book? I worked on it about two and a half years, and, and uh, uh, made quite a few trips back. As you know, I, all these people I interviewed, two hundred forty, and twenty of them have since died since I spoke to them hmm. and, uh, and, and several of them, uh, four or five of them from COVID. And, but that, but it was an older, it was an older, uh, group then uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you were like in your, 
you know, my age now or, or in your 50s. Yeah, barely turned 20. Right. So, you, yeah, so you add 40, that, that puts you pretty, that gets you up mm -hmm. to the upper bracket. Yeah. Very nice people. Very, very, I met a lot of nice people, I tell you. Were people uh, open to discussing it or did you find some people that the wounds were just so deep and they weren't going to peel off that scab? Yeah, there was a lady who, who was uh, trapped for quite a time and she moved away to Florida and we spoke on the phone and she just didn't want to open those wounds again. But most everybody did. And there was there was a fireman who didn't did not want to talk. But uh, just most everybody was very cooperative. And uh, and actually, they were glad to see that a, that a comprehensive uh, study of this thing could finally come out and that the, the city and, and the country could, could understand what really happened here. Yeah, I think having access to all of the materials that would have been part of a civil suit, that's pretty profound. Those statements are like gold. Uh, it was a gold mine for me. I mean, 75 depositions, some of them multi-volumes long, and uh, and many of those people are long deceased. So you throw their, but they were, they were at what time they were deposed was within a year of the disaster. So it was all fresh and new. And if you go and you interview those people, like the chief engineer, he's gone. But if you interview him today, He's he's going on memory and and so you you know it's a bit it's a bit skittish, but these this was all and it was you know uh, it was raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth so it was it was uh, it it was opened the door for me to to go back and really look at this. So what other elements of the legacy come to mind when if if you were given your Rotary Club speech about your book? Well, I'm not a member of the Rotary, but well, uh, whatever. You're a Rotary I, guest for the day, member okay. for the day. <laughs> okay, I guess I would say that uh, the real the real legacy here is that that, uh, that that one of the things they did that the American Society of Engineers said that it, before that before the Hyde, it was unclear who really was in charge of the construction site. Was it the general contractor? Was it the chief architect? Was it the structural engineer? Who, who should who should really be the, the main man? Who's most accountable? And they drew up these these rather tough guidelines that said from, from here on it's the structural engineer, it's the top guy uh, who who is all ultimately responsible for everything. And that was a big change. It was a big change in how uh, uh, construction crews are put together and how projects were were being built. That was a big change. It also brought a lot of changes in the architecture. And Bob Berkabil, who was the chief architect at the Hyatt, went on to do a lot of really great work with the, in the green field of architecture. And, and, and so there was that kind of stuff that really was some good came out of that. Out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. All right. Uh, I, I want to thank Rick Serrano for uh, sharing his time with us today. He's the author of Barry Truce and the Hyatt Skywalks. And uh, I want to thank you for your work chronicling this event that, that touched people and many people in Kansas and Missouri. Thanks for joining us today. Thank and you. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>